Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Lost in Science Summer Series. Yes, as usual, we have a bit of a change in pace over summer and we play some of our favourite stories from the Laboratory of the previous year. Now, the Laboratory, for those who don't know, it is a science storytelling event where scientists get up on stage and they tell the stories of their science heroes. And we have a couple of great stories for you today. Later on, you will hear wildlife biologist and science media specialist Lynette Plenderleith telling the story of the herpetologist, that is the snake expert, Grace Olive Wiley. But first, we have Matthew Snelson. Matthew is in the final throes of a PhD investigating the effects of a processed diet on gut homeostasis and the impact this has on diabetic kidney disease. He has presented his findings at a number of international conferences, each in a location more exotic than the last, Tokyo, Lisbon and Perth. Earlier in 2018, he was a Victorian finalist in FameLab, which is a global science communication competition. He has written for The Conversation, and he has run science classes during National Science Week and Melbourne Knowledge Week. And he is going to tell us about Danish biochemist Henrik Dam, who discovered the importance of vitamin K. Hello, Laboristore. It's great to be here, where we get to talk about, you know, the most important and and greatest scientists of our time. So I thought I'd start by talking about myself. Um, I'm currently running an experiment. Um, I, should, I should mention my, uh, my primary collaborator in this, actually, my wife. We're, uh, we're creating a human. It's, uh, that's, uh, that's, that, thank you for that smattering of applause from one gentleman. Um, no, it's, it's, it's true. We're quite excited. We're in the final stages. You know, we're preparing the manuscript at the moment. Uh, we're hoping to submit to Nature... Um, if it gets rejected, we'll go to nurture. Um, but we're, you know, we're very excited and we're learning about lot, a lot about what's going to be happening to our infant after they enter the world. And one of the things that's going to happen during those first few hours of birth, whilst we're still cradling her in our, in our arms, a very nice nurse will come and give a little heel prick of vitamin K. And I'm very curious. I wanted to learn more about this vitamin K. You know, what is it? Why do we give it? Why do the vitamins go A, B, C, D, E, and then just jump to K? And yes, there are eight B vitamins, but that's just a whole other rabbit hole. Uh, this talk today, it's about Henrik Dam, who was studying cholesterol in Copenhagen in 1928 and would later go on and receive the Nobel Prize for the discovery of vitamin K. Uh, but our story starts, like all good stories do, with Canadian chickens. Uh, so it's 1928. Henrik, he's interested in cholesterol. He knows that uh, rats, mice and dogs, they're all able to synthesize cholesterol. They're able to make it. But it was thought that chickens couldn't. And that's because 14 years earlier, in 1914, re- researchers in Ontario showed that chickens, they didn't grow when their cholesterol was extracted from their diet. But cholesterol, when you extract that, you extract a lot of other things as well. 
fat-soluble things. And back in 1914, we didn't really know that much about fat-soluble things. Vitamin A, the first fat-soluble vitamin to be discovered, was only discovered that year. Um, in 1920, six years later, was when we discovered vitamin D. So Henrik, he wanted to try and repeat these studies, extracting cholesterol from the diet, but adding back in vitamin A and vitamin D. Um, and from this, he, he found that the chickens were able to grow. And we conclude from this that chickens, they can make their own cholesterol. They don't need it in the food. Done. Boom. End of story. He's proved the chickens can make cholesterol. But... um. There was, this, there was this one curious finding. He noticed that when chickens were kept on these diets for longer periods of time, they would start to bleed. And when he took the, the blood out and had a look at it under the microscope, it would take longer to clot. And he was really curious about this. Was it the lack of cholesterol which was causing this bleeding to happen? He just proved that chickens can make their own cholesterol. So he went back, he, he got his cholesterol-extracted diet, he put the vitamin A and the vitamin D back in, and then he added just pure cholesterol to it. And still the chickens bled. Okay, thought Henrik, you know, maybe these diets, they're too low in fat now. So he tried it again, he added linseed oil into it, and then trioline, which is an unsaturated fatty acid from olive oil. But still the chickens bled. Um, around this time, the original people back in Canada... They observed that, you know, these chickens were, were having prolonged bleeding time as well. So they tried, tried a couple of things. They found that adding uh, fish or meat meal back into the diets, they stopped the bleeding. But when they tried ether-extracted fish or meat meal, the chickens still bled. But they didn't take it any further than that. Around this time, in, over in California, researchers showed that they could prevent this bleeding by giving the chickens fresh cabbage. Aha! They said. Cabbage has vitamin C. Vitamin C is saving our chickens. Now, Henrik, he, was, he wanted to test this, and vitamin C had just been purified. So he got some of this pure vitamin C. He fed it to his chickens, but the chickens still bled. He, he tried a number of other approaches as well. He altered the salt content of the diet. Then he tried adding wheat germ, and the chickens, they still bled. He knew there was some unknown factor that was removed from the diet when we extract that cholesterol, but he didn't know what. By 1935, he was trying anything. He tried different plant extracts. He tried mashing up animal organs and feeding that to the diet and finally found that there were a few things, pig liver being one of them, that would actually stop these chickens bleeding. So now he knows that there's some fat-soluble factor in there and it's necessary to stop these chickens from bleeding. He gives it a name. This is helping blood uh, to coagulate. So he says, I'm going to call this coagulation vitamin. He was in Germany at the time, where they spelled coagulation with a K. And that is where we get the, uh, the vitamin K from. Oh, end, end of story. That's enough, I think. Um, so he, and he managed to figure out that you know, this concentration of, of pig liver, this, it's in there somewhere. So he worked hard for years and years, just trying to purify it down, testing each each um, sort of section of the purification process until he finally got to the point where he had a, had a, a pretty pure or pretty strong concentration of vitamin K. And from there he could study the effects of it and learn about its actions, figure out how it was actually helping blood to clot. Uh, in 1939, uh, 
Edward Doisy, uh, he actually was able to isolate vitamin K from alfalfa meal and then able to describe the chemical structure. So it's 1940, so we now know what vitamin K looks like, we know what it does, and we can use it to stop chickens bleeding, which chickens were thrilled about. And uh, people were getting thrilled about it as well. Uh, in the late 1930s, you know, vitamin K was first used to treat uh, hemorrhages in humans. People with obstructive jaundice, they have a tumour that stops the bile duct being able to secrete bile. It means that they can't absorb fat. It means they can't absorb fat-soluble vitamins. So it means they don't get any vitamin K. So they're very low in vitamin K. So when the surgeons go in to remove that tumour, there's a really high risk of them bleeding. They gave vitamin K before the surgery and a bit afterwards and were able to reduce that rate of bleeding. Um, Now people, us people, we're all people here, we get vitamin K from food, but about half of our vitamin K, that's actually produced in our gut by our bacteria there. And we're all um, very lucky because we've got an army of bacteria in our gut that are working really hard making that vitamin K for us. But it's not great news for newborn babies who don't actually have any bacteria in their gut when they're born. And it takes a while for that bacteria to build up to a point where it can produce enough vitamin K for us. Um, And during this time, there's a small but very, very serious risk of bleeding uh, to newborn babies. Now, Henrik, he was able to show that from the blood from babies who had hemorrhaged, that took a lot longer to clot compared to the blood from babies who didn't hemorrhage. He then tried an intervention study um, in the early 40s, which I'm sure was ethically above board, um, treating babies with vitamin K, and it decreased the clotting time back to normal levels in about 24 hours. In 1943, Henrik received the Nobel Prize uh, for medicine for the discovery of vitamin K, and it's easy to see why their work was worthy of this recognition. There was a 1944 uh, paper published in The Lancet which looked at 13,000 infants and found that vitamin K injection given at birth reduced the incidence of neonatal deaths from 2% down to 0.45%, which is a funny fact to someone, but it's a huge, huge reduction. Um, And by the 1950s, giving vitamin K at birth was was just commonplace. And vitamin K deficiency, we're very lucky. It's the bleeding that occurred from it. It's very rare in countries where vitamin K is given prophylactically at birth. However, it's unfortunately still an issue in some rural, low-income areas, particularly around Southeast Asia, where it's estimated about one in a thousand infants suffers from intracranial bleeding, which could be prevented with vitamin K. Now, I really like the story of Henrik Dam and the, the discovery of vitamin K because there's no eureka moment. He noticed something that was curious to him, so he tried a bunch of things, none of which worked, and then he finally found something that worked, which I think is a good um, analogy for the the whole scientific process. And I think the story also highlights the value to society of curiosity-driven science, often referred to as blue-sky research, which is increasingly difficult to get funding for. Because Henrik had shown chickens synthesize cholesterol. I mean, his PhD was titled Some Investigations on the Biological Significance of the Sterols. He got a PhD, could have been it, end of story. Uh, Instead, he noticed this peculiar phenomenon and he pursued it. He saw a question and he wanted to answer it for the sake of answering it. He was driven by curiosity to understand and we can thank Henrik Dam's curiosity for leading us to the discovery of vitamin K, which has changed postnatal care worldwide and saved countless lives 
the discovery of vitamin K, it's a story of cholesterol, of chickens, but above all, of curiosity. Thank you. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. Our next laboratory speaker is Dr. Lynette Plendeleith. Now, Lynette is a wildlife biologist by training, and she has a PhD from Monash University, where she studied the ecology of native Australian frogs. She is now a science media specialist working mostly in television. Lynette is current president of the Victorian branch of the Australian Science Communicators and spends her spare time snorkeling, hiking, and competing with her dogs at agility. And Lynette is going to tell us about American herpetologist Grace Olive Wiley. Hello, good evening. Um, I think I better preface this by saying that I am a feminist and I am a snake lover. Oops. Anyway, I think that's important to note because the story that I'm about to tell might give the impression of the opposite. Um, but I very definitely love some snakes and I am very definitely a feminist. So uh, forgive me if I seem to tell the opposite story right now. Grace Olive Wiley was born in a small town in 1883. I uh, I hesitate to say the name of the town because I'm pretty sure that I could only come off as a racist. You see, it was it was it was named after a Frenchman, but it's in Kansas and it's something along the lines of Chanute or Canute or Huacanute. Um, anyway, I'll leave it up to you how to pronounce that. I don't really care. Anyway, the town was really, really tiny back in 1883. There's still only 10,000 or so people there today. Uh, but at the time, it was, it was in its infancy. There was just a handful of families there. However, it seems to have been something of a hod- hotbed of success. The Wikipedia page for Canute or whatever is um, lists 10 notable people to have come from the town. 10! And I know at least one of them, and that's Grace Olive Wiley. So 1883, the year Grace Wiley was born, was a long time ago. Now, I know you guys are intelligent, but that's a long time ago. It was the year that Treasure Island and Pinocchio were first published in book form. Krakatoa erupted. The first vaudeville theatre opened. Maine's Electricity... Hello, just in its infancy. It was the world's first rodeo, literally, and actually the last time we saw a quagga walking the earth. I don't think those two things are related, but who knows. Um, Robert Koch uh, discovered cholera. Karl Marx died in 1883, but yet to be born were Adolf Hitler 
and the fountain pen. That's how long ago it was. The new railroads of the new world were winding their way across the plains of the USA. Stagecoach robberies were still a thing. And the world had not yet heard of Madeleine Albright, Betty Ford, Eva Perron, Jermaine Greer, Anne Summers, and even suffragettes. And yet, Grace Wiley thought to herself, you know what? I'd like to study creepy crawlies for a living. So she went to the University of Canvas, which was no small feat for a woman in that era. No small feat at all to be accepted. Um, But further to that, she got a job afterwards as an entomologist in the university. And she was off through the southwest of the United States doing her entomological things, and she decided to start collecting rattlesnakes in her spare time. And when I say collecting rattlesnakes, I don't mean cute ornamental porcelain maybe even, I don't know, glass rattlesnakes. I mean wild rattlesnakes from the effing wild, wild rattlesnakes. And then she thought, oh, you know what? I might have a go at breeding these things because every Victorian lady knows that there's only one better thing than having a house full of wild rattlesnakes, and that's more rattlesnakes. But here's the thing about that. Breeding rattlesnakes in captivity was completely unheard of at the time. Nobody, nobody had ever done it before. And breeding animals in captivity isn't easy. Even today, we struggle with hundreds of thousands of species trying to get them to breed in captivity. Animals need, have very specific requirements about what they need in order to breed in captivity. And for the most part, we don't even know what those requirements are, let alone actually being able to meet them. But somehow, old Grace Wiley, she'd managed to breed herself some rattlesnakes and had hundreds of the things. In 1923, she got a job at the Minneapolis Public Library. Now, that sounds like quite a becoming job for a young lady in 1923. But there, rather than looking after the books, she collected more amphibians and reptiles and hundreds of the things lying about the library, which I'm sure they loved as part of their education program. Um, And she she developed a reputation for being fearless. But she didn't make many friends at the library because she just thought that she wasn't frightened of them and nor should anybody else be. So they can just wander around the library as they wish. You see, she thought that children weren't born with a fear of snakes. She thought that they loved snakes just like they loved cats and dogs. Now, I don't know if you know any five-year-olds, six-year-olds, but if you gave them the choice between a kitten and a rattlesnake, you can only guess what they might choose. Um, But the argument about whether kids are frightened of snakes when they're born or whether they learn that from grown-ups like yourselves, most of you, um, that's something that's still debated today. We still don't really know that. Uh, Again, like I say, I I think I know more young kids that like kittens and puppies than they do snakes, but that's fine. That's what Grace Wiley reckoned. She thought that they were pretty much harmless. She said, um, don't be afraid of a reptile's tongue. The only animal that can hurt you with its tongue is the demon. It's probably best I don't comment on that one. Um, let's talk about the Bible. The Bible is is responsible for a lot of a lot of poor snakes' demise. Actually, I know people personally who kill snakes on sight on the basis that the Bible says that snakes are bad, so they got to go. Um, 
But Wiley, Wiley was somehow apart from the whole of that culture. She thought that train, snakes were trainable. Even the most venomous snakes could be trained, presumably much like you would a puppy or a dog. Um, spoiler alert. Can't, can't, can't train a snake. Certainly not like a puppy. Anyway, let's cut us some slack. You see, you have to remember it was the turn of the century before the turn of the last century. It was a long time ago. And it was a very, very different place. Not in a hashtag me too sort of a different place. Although, has to be said, if that was a thing back then, would have totally been a thing back then. Because, you know, this was, this was pre-feminists. Um, pre-social media, it was a snake charming line taming soaring a woman in half kind of a time. Houdini was in his prime. And still decades away were mobile phones and labradoodles. But Grace Wiley, she was a trailblazer. She didn't have many friends. Fair to say her colleagues were not really keen on her lax attitude to health and safety, as much as she believed that the snakes that she had roaming the halls of the library were trained and therefore quite safe. Her um, colleagues didn't really agree with having them crawling around the corridors. I can't imagine why. But it was before the time, remember, of plain packaged cigarettes and seatbelts and all those sorts of things. This was a time of danger and bravery and foolishness. So in 1933, Grace Wiley moved to Brookfield Zoo, which might, you might think is probably a better place for somebody that was so keen on amphibians and reptiles. And she got a job as a curator of reptiles. So Again, remember, this is still only 1933. This is pretty remarkable for a, for a woman of that time. Um, but she, despite all, all her brilliance, all her intelligence, all her astuteness, all her experience, she kind of missed the basic principle about zoos. And I think of the basic principle of zoos as being animals kept in cages. But not Grace Wiley. Oh, no, these snakes were trained so they might as well just wander around and interact with the public in any way they know how so um anyway in, in 1935 she was let go so you might think things are looking a bit grim for our poor friends to the snakes snakes are persecuted women are marginalized and it's the 1930s which is not known to have been an ideal time for either of those things but it was the beginning of the golden age of Hollywood. And Grace Wiley was a bright sort. And so were the producers and the directors of the movies in Hollywood. And what does every young film producer want in Hollywood in the 1930s? A snake trainer. And of course, who do we know that can train snakes? Grace Olive Wiley. She is able to train a venomous snake, so it's no danger to anybody. So off she goes to join Hollywood, and her snakes, her best friends, are in The Jungle Book and other films that require trained venomous snakes. Now, at this point, she's amassed a massive collection of reptiles, lots of snakes, but lots of other animals as well. And so she opens her own private zoo. And she charges everybody a quarter to come and have a look around her snakes and her amphibians, her lizards. And, um, and she's quite entrepreneurial as well. You know, this is, this is still only the 1930s. And, you know, Grace Wiley, she's, she's before her time. She really is. And in 1948, Wiley invited a journalist to come to her private zoo and to take photos of her and her charges. 
And of course, she's quite close to them, and they are well-trained. So she's given a nice big Indian cobra a cuddle for the cameras. So I don't know how much you know about Indian cobras, but let's say they're a lot like a kitten, but with a little bit less fluff and a lot more venom. To cut a long story short, Wiley calmly requested that she be taken to hospital for treatment. So Indian cobras, they're elapids, which is a lot like most of the snakes in Australia. They have this um, neurotoxic venom, which attacks the the nervous system, and um, you're paralyzed, and then you get eaten, Um, which is a lot different from the rattlesnakes that they have in North America and most of the North American snakes that she'd worked with, which are vipers. And they have a hematoxic venom, which interferes with your blood supply and your blood flow, and your clot or your bleed, and, and then you collapse, and then you die, and you're eaten. So very different toxins. The result is the same, but very different toxins and require different treatment. The hospital, which of course is in North America, had plenty of antivenom for the hematoxic snakes, but only one vial of antivenom for the neurotoxin. And that vial was broken, and the antivenom had dispersed. So, as you might have worked out, this story has a bit of a sad ending. Grace Wiley never made it. Her uh, body was well and truly destroyed by the venom of the snake that she so loved and had trained. Um, She, like so many people throughout history, purely misunderstood snakes. But I don't remember Grace Wiley as a foolhardy figure of recklessness who was killed by her own naivety. She was so much more than that. She had a devil-may-care attitude. She was one of the very first few female herpetologists that blazed a trail for myself and I'm sure for many others in this room. She She made such professional headway in a time when women were really only expected to know how to get married and have a family, maybe play the piano. She laughed in the face of the boys' club that was entomology. She published papers on water boatmen and anoles. And that was a time when, you know, maybe she could have made her own dresses, was all that, all that society expected of her. And then when things got really rough, she transitioned from curating animals to working in Hollywood at a time when women in Hollywood were expected to be blonde and seductive and all the other things that, for the most part, they still are today. But at that time, it was even worse. She was bold and she was brave and she was industrious. And she's my hero. Thank you. And that is it for this, our first summer episode of Lost in Science for 2019. Now, Lost in Science, it is, of course, recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network uh, with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear, always love to hear from our audience. Uh, You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can... Uh, find us on Facebook, we are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or you can find us on Twitter, we are at Lost in Science 1. You can also find our podcast on many platforms if you're able to log on and give us a good review and rating. That'll help lift us up in search rankings and other people can share the science love. Or, of course, you can just listen to it on the radio like so many other people do. Where at the same time every week, Chris, Claire and Stu get Lost in Science!
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.